Church, I invite everyone to stand on our feet in honor of the Word of God. Our sermon this week is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 to 31. Let us read it together in the count of three. One, two, three. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Carrie. Yes, everyone may sit. Woo! Like, you know, I am excited to bring the word tonight. Uh, and with it, I see that there's a lot of things I need to bring up on stage as well. Mike, and then there's the PowerPoint mover, uh, the iPad. Um, but praise God. Uh, and to start, I just want to say thank you to Pastor Yossia uh, for mentoring me for the last four years so that I could preach solo today. But wait... But let me just say that why I'm up here is not because I'm more qualified or I'm wiser than any of you, but it is because of God's grace, as we just read in the passage tonight, by His grace alone, that He's opened my heart to see the beauty of the gospel and now enables me to come and bring this good news to you. And our prayer is that tonight, as we wrap up this wisdom series on on living skillfully, we can all come to see how beautiful the gospel truly is and also go on to share this good news with others. And if this is your first time to church, I'd like to say welcome to you. But again, if this is the first sermon you've listened to for this four-sermon part part series, then I highly encourage you to go and listen to the first three sermons on our YouTube or Spotify channel. Because for the last month, we've heard what it means to finding wisdom, to growing in wisdom and walking in wisdom. And tonight, to end this series, we're going to look at the wisdom that makes doing all three possible. So do catch up if you haven't already. Now, if you were here from the very start, you might remember Pastor Yossi is saying that BBC Sherlock Holmes TV series is one of the best TV series of all time, right? And I Totally agree with him. And I'm I'm sure that there's many of you that also agree with him or with us now. 
Uh, seeing Benedict Cumberbatch, you know, solve different crime mysteries and making sense of everything in what he calls the mind palace is just brilliant, right? He's a genius. And because I love that show so much that my, I, get, I get quite competitive when I play a game called Cluedo, right? And my MC would complain when we, you know, when I suggest to play Cluedo. In fact, that's probably why we don't play it anymore in Fellowship. Um, yeah, my MC would know uh, what I would do, right? When we play Cluedo, I would use a separate A4 piece of paper to jot down every answer and clue just to be the first to solve the crime, right? I see some of you in my MC nodding their heads. It you know, why do I do that? Because it feels so good to solve the crime first, right? It feels so good to make sense of something before anyone else does. And you know what? Almost every time we play, I'm one of the first to get out. You know, I thought I had everything worked out. I thought I had all the information that I needed, yet I couldn't be any further away from the truth. And the thing is, this type of prideful wisdom was rampant within the Corinthian church and is something that many of us struggle with here today, myself included. You know, in reflection of the world's standards of of wisdom, you know what we do? We value intelligence and wisdom to the point that we begin to compete with one another. And the scary thing is, we do this in the church with our brothers and sisters that are sitting next to us right here, right now. You know, we use looking, sorry, we use knowing God as an achievement of our wisdom, and we look down on others for not being on our level. In thinking that we have God all worked out, we feel more superior and wiser than anyone. Well, we couldn't be any further from the truth. And Paul says in our passage tonight, we are to do none of that. So we'll only look at two things tonight, the perishing crowd and the foolish few. Now, for some of you who say, oh, he's only got two points, it's going to be a quick sermon, we'll see if that's foolish or wisdom, right? <laughs> All right, first, let's have a look at the perishing crowd. Let's read what Paul has to say in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So here now, after rebuking the Corinthian church for their idolatry of human wisdom, Paul nails home the hard truth that will form the foundation of tonight's sermon. And that is, human wisdom has absolutely zero bearing on God's divine wisdom. Simply put, our wisdom is worthless before God. And you know what? Paul doesn't stop there. He continues on and quotes Isaiah 29 to say that God will destroy that wisdom and that he will render useless all human intelligence. He will thwart it. Now, some of you must be saying, whoa, Josh, hang on a second. What do you mean it's worthless? Doesn't God give us our intellectual ability to, to ponder, to brainstorm, to critically think, to make sense, to gain wisdom on this earth? What do you mean it's worthless? Well, by all means, yes, God does. He does give us that intellectual ability. By God's grace, we are created as intellectual beings. We're given the, the ability to discover, to teach, to learn, and advance in all things. 
which is just so awesome. And that's what we should be striving towards to do. But what Paul is saying here is that in light of the eternal things, things that concern God, things that concern your salvation, things that concern your life's purpose and destiny, we are to count human wisdom as nothing. But why? Why do we count it as nothing? Because no form of human wisdom and intelligence in all its advancement has and could ever solve the greatest problem to ever exist, the problem of sin. I mean, you can try to put into a room, right, all the world's smartest people. Just think about it. All the world's smartest scientists, all the world's smartest doctors, all the world's smartest politicians, lawmakers, scientists, professors, whatever, right, to solve this sin problem. But Paul says it will all be done in vain. In fact, you know what he does? He calls them out in verse 20. This is what he says. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You know, it's, it's, it's like in that movie Gladiator, right? Uh, it's an awesome movie, and if you haven't seen it, do watch it. I only got my wife to watch it a couple of months ago. Um, but it's like in that movie when Maximus defeats all the other gladiators in the arena and yells out at the crowd, are you not entertained? Remember that? Of course the crowd were entertained. I mean, they were there for a very reason, right? But the problem was they found entertainment in the wrong thing. They found entertainment in something so grotesque. And like Maximus, Paul also calls out the Corinthians for boasting in the wrong thing. They were boasting in something God made foolish, the wisdom of the world. And you know what? This is something many of us need to wake up to because for the most part of our lives, we've also been boasting in this worldly wisdom. I mean, think about it, right? We delight in just how smart we are in making sense of the world. We want to make sense of what's happening to our surroundings. We, we treasure and value our gold standard resumes and academic transcripts to the point that we continue to refine them. We think about them. And we wear our many achievements like they're badges of honor around the people around us. And don't think just because you're in church here today or you're tuning in online that we're safe from these practices. This very much happens inside the church as well. You know, we feel like we're the smarter or wiser or better Christian because we've read countless Tim Keller books, right? Or we have a favorite preacher. Or we serve in one, two, three, four, five ministries. Or perhaps we post Christian quotes on Instagram that make us feel good. Or maybe for some of us at the start of the year, we've diligently stuck to our daily Bible reading plans. Or we never missed a day of our fasting. You know, how, you know what the heartbreaking thing is, church? The heartbreaking thing is we see our wisdom or lack of wisdom as what defines us. But listen to what Paul has to say for our pursuit of wisdom. 
in verse 21. You know what he says? He says this, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Church, like the Corinthians, we've lost sight of what's truly valuable to us. That what saved us from the problem of sin and enables us to get to know God is not found in worldly wisdom, but it's found in something the exact opposite. What does Paul say? In the wisdom of God. And you know what? God, in his unsearchable wisdom, provides the only single solution to our sin problem. Redemption through the life, death, and resurrection of his beloved son, Jesus. You see, Jesus had to die on the cross so that everyone who now confesses their sins and puts, and puts their faith in him shall not perish but be saved. That's it. Church, this word of the cross is the gospel. It's the very good news. Or is it foolishness? Now, let's pause for a second. You know, why, why did I ask, is it foolishness? Of course, it's, it's the good news. Well, let's take a good look at our hearts wherever we are, whether we're here in person or where we're tuning in online. You know, what has been your response when you see the cross? What happens when you hear the good news of the gospel? Do you find conviction in your hearts and see it as the very power of God to save and transform your life? But not only your life, but the lives of your, your colleagues, your neighbors, your friends, and your family? Or do you see it as nothing more but mere folly? It's foolishness, right? And what I mean by that is, you know, you're not moved by it. And every time you hear the gospel, it's just like any other Bible story that you, you, you talk about only when it's Easter, Good Friday, or on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday when it's your MC, because, hey, I go to Rock Sydney English service. Church, pay attention here. Don't miss this. Paul is very clear in how we respond to the gospel puts us only in one or two groups. You're either part of the group being saved or you're part of the group who is perishing. And like we've heard throughout this whole sermon series, right? Again, if you haven't listened to the first three sermons, do listen to it. But like we've heard throughout that whole, our whole wisdom series, we are all on a path to a destination. You are never standing still. There is no middle ground. There's always the path to wisdom or the path to destruction. Now, the question for all of us here tonight is, which path are you on? Which group do you belong to, the perishing or the being saved? Now, I'm sure many of us said being saved, right? But if we're honest, don't we sometimes just find it so difficult, so difficult to believe the gospel for what it is? I mean, Paul continues in verse 21. He says, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You know, Paul uses two groups of people, the Jews and the Greeks, to explain why this perishing world sees Christ crucified as foolishness. So let's first take a look at the Jews, right? Who were the Jews? They were the I'll believe it when I see it type of crowd, right? In a way, they're like your ancient IT security team where, you know, when you go online shopping and after you go through all the effort to put in your personal details, you know, you tell the prompts, you know, who you are, perhaps, you know, how many kidneys you have, what color your eyes are, and it still says, oh, yeah, cool, select the squares where the pedestrian crossing is, right, just to prove that you are you. So if Jesus didn't give them the signs they wanted or performed some divine capture code to prove who he was, then everything he said simply couldn't be trusted. You know, in their minds, the Messiah had to come with all splendor, in all glory, and with all majesty for everyone to see. So when Jesus was crucified on the cross it was a sure sign that he wasn't their Messiah. He died in weakness and defeat. And Paul says the cross became a stumbling block because the Scriptures say that whoever is hung on a tree is cursed by God. So for the Jews, no way were they ready to will and willing to believe in someone who not only didn't perform the miracles they wanted, but also died being cursed by God. So the, to the Jews, the gospel just couldn't be validated. So he can't be trusted. Now, the Greeks, on the other hand, who were the Greeks, right? So the Greeks represent the Gentiles, the non-Jews. They use reason and logic to know God. They were the crowd that says, I'll believe it if it makes logical sense to me. So for God to be believable, he needed to complete a what makes a God 101 checklist, right? Or put it in today's terms, can God be the next Marvel Avenger? Right? God needs to be powerful. He needs to be intelligent, likable, successful, superior, heroic, provide all the answers of the universe, and most importantly, not die at the hands of its creation. Only then, when God meets our expectations, only then, when God checks all the boxes, can He truly be my God. Can He truly be a God? So now when Jesus was stripped naked, tortured and nailed to the cross, to save his people, well, that's just too humiliating for a God to go through, right? No God will do that. That's not intelligence. That's not wisdom. That's stupidity. So to the Greeks, the gospel just doesn't make sense. So it's unbelievable. But, you know, before we dismiss these two unbelieving groups that Paul mentioned and say, that's not me, Josh, don't we see some similarities in our lives today? I mean, yes, right? We hear Christ crucified being preached every week from this pulpit at RSE. But rather than trusting and believing the gospel is God's power that saves us. Do you know what we do, church? We put our confidence in that what saves us is that we've made the right decisions to be a Christian. That we're good with God just because we've made it to church today. That we're safe with God because we made you know, we, we put that little effort in just to tune in online because we couldn't make it to church. 
And here's how I see this play out in my life recently. You know, by God's grace, Helen and I were expecting our first child in June. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's so exciting. And as you can imagine, yeah, we're just very excited. But at the same time, we can't help but also feel a deep anxiety of just how much harder it would be to raise our beloved son or daughter to know Christ in today's world. So rather than trusting the gospel is the only thing that can change our heart, rather than trusting the gospel is the only thing that can save our children, we find ourselves putting the importance on getting things done right. You know, what this looks like is we want to make sure our child goes to the right school, that they'll grow up with the right friends, that they'll be part of the right community, that they'll be doing the right activities as what saves them and brings them to know God. What's happened is that we've all tried to put God into what works or makes sense for us. And if He doesn't fit, then it's just so hard to believe in Him. Can you see how easy it is to use our wisdom as a condition of our faith? We ultimately say to God, God, yeah, I've done my due diligence on you. Yeah, I can relate to you in some areas. Yeah, I know you can give me what I want. Yeah, I can see how I can trust you, God. So I've decided that you're the one for me. In other words, we look internally to find reason and make sense of what is given to us externally by God at the cross of Christ. Church, if we do this, then let me be the first to say that we're no different to the ultimate fools in this pericope the Jews and the Greeks who hold on to their own wisdom. This is what J.R. Packer says. Our thoughts of God are not great enough. We fail to reckon with the reality of His limitless wisdom and power because we ourselves are limited and weak. We imagine that at some points God is too and find it so hard to believe that He is not. We think of God as too much like what we are, Put this mistake right, says God. Learn to acknowledge the full majesty of your incomparable God and Savior. Church, it is only when we begin to acknowledge the full majesty of God that He is incomprehensible and incomparable to anything that we can think and imagine that we can begin to see and experience that the gospel is the life-transforming power of God and the wisdom of God. You know what the world sees God has done on the cross as foolish and weak? We see it as so much wiser and stronger than whatever the world can produce. But how is it? How is it that we can see so differently from this perishing world? Which brings me on to my next point, the foolish few. Now let's read what uh, Paul has to say in verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Wow, so you know what? After Paul argues why 
the gospel in destroying worldly wisdom is rejected and seen as foolish by the perishing world, he now illustrates this very truth through the life of his brothers, the foolish few. And what a great way, right, to address them by saying, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Now, Paul straight up says that the church is home to the nobodies of the world. It's home to the foolish. Now, don't you just feel a tiny bit offended after reading what Paul wrote? You know, it's, if I could use a metaphor or an illustration, it's like if our beloved pastor Yossia was called by God to serve overseas and after being years away, it takes years, right? After being years away, he decides to pen a letter to our church to be read out loud. So Edric comes up on stage, you know, da-da-da-da. Um, and Edric, you know, opens the letter. And he reads, Yellow Rock, Sydney, the church where the majority of you aren't by any means educated, important, or influential. You know, like most of us, Edric would just stop reading there scrunch up the piece of paper and say it was a mistake, right? But why is it? Why is it do we feel so offended? Even if it's a tiny bit. It's because our hearts deserve, sorry, our hearts desire to be valued members of society. We want to feel appreciated. We want the assurance that we're good enough and have everything to fit into our communities. We want to be seen as wise by the people around us. And as the world celebrates and promotes those with wisdom, power, and influence, when it feels like we're lacking in these qualities, then we can't help but just feel like we'll never be good enough. And as Christians, I'm sure that many of us here tonight aren't strangers to this pressure, right? I mean, think about it. When people know you're Christian, you're seen as someone who's foolishly small-minded or you're part of a group who just can't keep up with the times. In fact, it's probably why we struggle so much to share the gospel in our offices, in our workplaces, in our classrooms, or in the various social settings that we're in. Because when we begin to have the urge to share what we discussed in our MCs, when we want to share what we heard on Sunday, our initial response is to suppress those thoughts. But church, listen to this. Paul makes no mistake. He wants us to take heart and remember something very, very important. It's that as Christians, instead of being offended, we can rejoice when people call us foolish. We can find encouragement when we see our endless list of weaknesses and shortcomings. How come? Because we know that though we're a people that will never be good enough for the world, we have a God who is perfectly good and has called us to be his people. And look at what Paul says next in verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing Things that are. I mean, how assuring are these verses from Paul, right? Do you see who is single-handedly setting the narrative and doing all the actions? God is. 
Paul repeats God chose three times to emphasize just how unmistakable and deliberate our God is in choosing and calling his people. I mean, yes, the majority of the Corinthians were foolish and weak nobodies, but they were the very people God chose to shame the world. You can see that. God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low and despised. And this is true for us here today. Like the Corinthians, Rock Sydney is home for the imperfect. I mean, you don't even need to look around you, right? Just look in the mirror and you'll see that this family is made out of people from different backgrounds, each with their own faults, their own scars, their own burdens, their own flaws, failures. The list is endless. And let's face it, even by the standards of Sydney, let alone Atamin, none of us make it on the map for being impressive. Yet despite our small number, despite our flaws, despite our insignificance, God has intentionally chosen you and I to bring to nothing all the things seen by the world as valuable and important. I mean, how incredibly undeserving are we of such saving grace, right? And do you know what happens when we live with this truth in our hearts, church? God gets all the glory. Now, going back to the example of Sherlock Holmes, as you can see, I really love Sherlock Holmes. Going back to Sherlock Holmes, if you read the original novels by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you'll see that what makes Sherlock the well-known legendary detective was not only because he could solve the hardest murder mysteries, but because of his sidekick, Dr. Watson. Now, even though Dr. Watson didn't have Sherlock's inside or mind palace, nor was he the one to solve the crimes, he experienced firsthand and saw firsthand what Sherlock did. He was so captivated by it that it made him go on to write Sherlock's biography and document all of Sherlock's good works. So the novels that we read today are written from the perspective of Dr. Watson on just how awesome Sherlock was. And like Dr. Watson, our lives today also go on to testify to the world of who our God is and all that he has done in our lives. And this is what Paul concludes with in verse 29. He says, So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Meaning that if we genuinely believe that it was God and only God, who in His sovereign grace and mercy has chosen you and called you, then we have no room to boast in the presence of God. I mean, what reason is there for us now to say, well, look at me. I was smart enough. I was wise enough to pick God. Or how can they be so dumb not to accept the gospel? How can they be so dumb not to live out the gospel, even though it's before their very eyes? None. There is not one single reason to boast that anything of our own doing, whether in our thought or action, is what saves us and ultimately leads us to know God. Instead, Paul says, our only single reason to boast is found in Christ himself. 
But church, how can we begin to see the immeasurable weight and scale of just how much Christ deserves all our boasting, all our praise, and all our thanksgiving? Well, it's by asking and reflecting on this simple question. How is it that a worthless, weak, foolish, and wretched sinner like me able to be called and chosen by such a holy and just God? How? The answer is because Jesus became to us wisdom from God. You see, Jesus was the perfect Son of God. He was holy, righteous, and blameless. Like God the Father, Jesus was infinitely wise and powerful in every way. Yet in His great love for us, Jesus humbled Himself by leaving all of His heavenly glory behind to come down into this fallen and sinful, stricken world. To be born not into royalty, not into a palace, not into a mansion or some sort of nobility, but into poverty. Although He created the limitless universe by His breath, He became limited to draw breath as a human being. Although He lived a perfect sinless life and spoke the truth, He was still falsely accused, tortured and crucified by the wise and the powerful in the world. And and such was the hatred towards Him that He was killed on the cross. He was nailed to the cross in the most humiliating way possible, church. And you know what? As He hung mutilated and naked on the cross, do you know what the ultimate display of foolishness and weakness was? It was when Jesus completed the final step to solving our problem of sin. On the cross, Jesus experienced God's sheer hatred of sin and suffered God's eternal wrath for the sins He bore, our sins. Oh, church, we were the ones who deserved to be abandoned by God, right? We were the ones who should have perished for our sins. But today, we find ourselves with a very different outcome. We are chosen and called by God Because Jesus, who was chosen and called the Son of God, took our sins and nailed it to the cross with Him. Jesus died such a foolish death so that we, the foolish few, who believe can have true wisdom. A type of wisdom that doesn't perish, but one secured in Christ. That's what it means when Paul says Jesus became to us wisdom from God. Jesus' finished work on the cross gives us the guarantee that we have His righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We receive Jesus' righteousness to stand before a holy God. Sanctification to live our lives in step with the Holy Spirit and redemption to be free from the bondage of sin once and for all. Isn't that just so amazing? And Tim Keller puts it this way. The pattern of the cross means that the world's glorification of power, might, and status is exposed and defeated. On the cross, Jesus wins through losing, triumphs through defeat, achieves power through weakness and service, comes to wealth via giving all away, 
Jesus Christ turns the values of the world upside down. This church is what makes the message of the cross not foolish, but such good news. Church, how we can see the cross is beautiful is not by knowing more through the relentless pursuit of human wisdom, but it is by knowing that we have God's wisdom in the persons of Jesus Christ who relentlessly pursues after us. And as we heard last week, the good news is God's wisdom is not abstract, but a person that we can have a relationship with. And because of Jesus, we can have the confidence now to hold on and proclaim the gospel to the world despite being seen as foolish and weak. This truth, this truth is why Paul in 2 Corinthians is able to declare in his suffering a verse that we probably know so well. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My dear brothers and sisters, let us be a church that boasts all the more in Christ and declare just as Paul declares, when I am weak, then I am strong. And to close, I just want to say that there's anyone here with us today right here in this auditorium or tuning in online that has yet to give their life to Christ. And tonight, after tonight's sermon or a sermon in the last month, you feel deep down in your heart the weight of your sin, but at the same time, just how beautiful the cross truly is, then hear this. It's not about how smart you are, how much you know the Bible, how much you've done, First, getting your life in order or having to attend church a number of Sundays in a row. No, but only this, that Christ died for you. So if that's you, respond to the call. Come put your faith in him and be saved. Let's pray. Dear only Father, We thank you for the true wisdom that you've given to us in your beloved son, Jesus. Lord, if there's one thing that we can learn from tonight, it's that we are a people so undeserving of your grace. Though we hear your word week in and week out, we are still foolish in our hearts and with it our thoughts and actions. Instead of trusting your word, we choose to rely on our own wisdom, idolize the wisdom of the world, and we look down upon others for not being like us. Oh, how foolish are we, Father? And for that, we ask for forgiveness. Forgive our foolish, wicked ways, God, and help us to be on a path of wisdom. Guide us on the path that you've set before us through your Son, Jesus, who is our true wisdom. Open our hearts to treasure the cross above all things and to boast all the more that all I have is Christ, that Jesus is my life. 
In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.